The Drink Beer, Think Beer podcast is sponsored by Beer Edge. I'm Andy Crouch, the co-founder of Beer Edge, along with my partner and your podcast host, John Hall. John and I work hard to bring you fresh and insightful content related to the ever-changing world of craft beer. We're passionate about beer and independent journalism. If you're interested in supporting Beer Edge, visit our website, beeredge.com, which is updated regularly with new content, interviews, and articles. Please also consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your episodes. You can also subscribe to the Beer Edge newsletter on our website. Is there anyone you think that we should be talking to? Please drop us a line at andy at beeredge.com with your thoughts. And as always, thanks for your support. Welcome to Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. I'm John Hall, and this episode is produced by Beer Edge. Check out BeerEdge.com for articles, podcasts, and to subscribe to the newsletter written by myself and Andy Crouch. Also, be sure to follow Beer Edge on social media at The Beer Edge. So every once in a while, a beer comes your way from an unfamiliar brewery and just blows you away. It's one of the great things about having so many breweries in the country these days. There's a lot to discover. And so a few months back, I had a slew of beers from Crane Brewing Company in Raytown, Missouri. The Gozes and Berliner Weisses were subtle, flavorful, mixed with all kinds of ingredients, and layered with nuance that made me want to know more about where they came from. So I called up Chris Myers, he's the co-founder of the brewery, and he described Crane as inspired equally by both the bold craft beers of home and the rustic ales of Europe. A goal is to strive to build on a grand tradition that never stays the same for too long, he says. So the folks at Crane, they want to bring you, the drinker, a dry and rustic ale like those of Wallonia and the Sun Valley, fermented with your favorite little beasts in wood and steel after the style of the old country. And so in order to produce such wild and sour beers, they are harvesting their yeast and propagating it in their in-house laboratory, they say, and Myers told me, that the traditional methods, they take them seriously, but also have a few ideas of their own. They call it tradition evolving. And I started there with him, asking him to go deeper on that thought. Chris spoke to me from the brewery in Missouri, and here's our conversation. Yeah, um, tradition evolving is our motto, and for us it's it's kind of taking a lot of not just brewing techniques, but but especially the styles we, we kind of started with that we um, kind of fell in love with a lot of rustic ales, farmhouse ales, a lot of um, sours from different areas, uh, and, and we kind of try and bring those back to life, you know, with, with people that we share our beer with, but then also kind of the ingredients we add, you know, putting a kind of a modern twist on them. When you think about those styles, those particular styles, um, Berliners, Gozas, um, the different regional sours, what was it about those particular beers that initially inspired you? I, I imagine sort of a love for this came before you opened up your own brewery. Yeah. I mean, something new, something that we hadn't, you know, not everyone has experience with. You know, they're considered kind of newer in the craft brewing industry, obviously very, very old styles of beers worldwide. But um, for us, it's, it's there's some fun to it that a lot of these beers, you know, you think of them as being wild, being you know, something that you kind of let them do what they want to do and and grow with them. And 
a lot of the beers that we do year-round, you know, we've, we've got it pretty zeroed in. We know exactly how the beer is going to turn out every time. When we get to do something that's barrel-aged or with wild yeast or mixed cultures, that kind of brings some of the magic back to it. Um, and it's they're also great because they, um, they're they a nice gateway. So we find that a lot of consumers, um, a lot of, you know, not necessarily even craft beer drinkers, a lot of wine drinkers, cocktail drinkers, people who are in spirits, like it's, it's an easy way to kind of grab them in and, and show them what a beer can be. In, in, in what way, though? I mean, I, I'm, I'm often curious because I, I know we talk a lot about uh, cross drinkers more and more these days, folks who like wine, who like spirits, who like, who like beer. Um, beer does seem to be a larger hurdle for people who have gotten into spirits or gotten into wine. Um, beer seems to be the tougher one for them to, to, to jump over as opposed to somebody who started with beer who can jump into uh, some of the other arenas as well. When, you, when you're talking about some of these recipes, what do, you think is, what do you think you're making that is enticing to them and why? I think it's probably just, you know, people's conceptions of what a beer should be. We do a lot of events that we get invited to that are actually wine events, and we'll be one of the only breweries. And, um, you know, it's nice to talk to wine drinkers who are like, I gave up on beer. You know, I thought all beer tasted like this and that American light lager. Yeah. You know, the, a lot of the sours and, and farmhouse sales, they can be much more complex, you know, especially if you're adding fruit to them. The carbonation is a little bit higher, um, so you get that just that real spritzy effervescence, really refreshing. Um, so I think I think that's kind of the thing. It's just getting people away from what they think beer should be, and I think that you can use that in a lot of ways. It doesn't just have to be sours. I think the first time somebody who, you know, is into into coffee or chocolate, and the first time they have a you know a really rich stout for the first time, it's it's another gateway that kind of pulls them over. I want to talk about ingredients uh, as as we sort of continue this conversation, but um, you're obviously brewing with a variety of different, uh, different ingredients and fruits and vegetables and uh, herbs and spices. And I, I, I'm curious as when you go to some of these wine festivals, um, what some of the you know, added flavors, the adjunct flavors that, that you're adding to you know, the, these recipes, what are the ones that resonate most with the non beer crowd and is that different from what resonates with people who identify as, you know, beer people first? Um, I think certain fruits, um, you know, dark berries. Um, we do, we've done some collabs with some local wineries in town. So that's kind of a, you know, an even bigger crossover. Um, one of our, our number one beer that we sell is called Tea Vice. And it's not actually like green or black tea. It's, it's a uh, rooibos tea blend that we get from a local tea company in town and it's got lemongrass and hibiscus and and currants and so you get a little bit of that fruitiness but that one's huge and i think it reaches out to a lot of people because it's it's fruity but it's not a fruit beer um you know it's got some tannins it's got not really an herbal quality more like a floral quality um and and that one's been been huge for us and it's fun because it's a friend of ours that owns Hugo tea company so um, and it's also, you know, when we look at beer, a lot of fruit beers where we're trying to source local produce and things that are in season, that's a beer that's a lot nice to do because I know I can get that blend year round. That that particular uh, that tea beer, uh, the tea vice, um, I, I, I when I had it for the first time, it just sort of jumped out of the glass, and it was so unlike anything else that I had had in the beer space beforehand, um, and. 
I'm sort of curious as to the trial and error that you went through to get that beer to, to where it is. We basically, I mean, that was one that came out of, out of us homebrewing before we opened the brewery. Um, knowing I wanted to do something different, you know, we we had played a lot with coffee. That's, that's pretty standard in, in beer. Um, but we hadn't done a lot of stuff with tea. And so hanging out with my friend Tyler, who owns um, Hugo Tea Company, we basically sat down and did a, a cupping with several of his teas and um, profiles. We made uh, we made a basic wheat beer with like his Earl Grey tea and just that that bergamot. He used that, those citrus oils. You know, it, it almost turned it into more like a an IPA, kind of a little bit of um, bitterness, but really bright. Uh, but when we tried the the berry rooibos blend that he has, I immediately was like, "That's got to go on a sour." You know, for Lender Vice, something really light that pull all that flavor out when you so when you're homebrewing though so uh, well let me go back a little bit though um so was this just sort of like as soon as you had this particular tea um you're like okay this is going to be it did, did, did you have to play with dosing over time have you played with dosing over time have you played with amounts or you know the other ingredients or was this sort of lightning in the bottle the first time you brewed it um, we have played with quantities a little bit. I mean, mostly when we're adding that tea, um, it was the biggest factor was he does two different blends for a lot of his teas. He does different blends for whether or not it's going to be a hot tea or a cold tea. And, um, working with him on kind of what blend we were going to use. And when we actually were starting the brewery, um, it just clicked. And one day, you know, he assumed we're brewing beer. We're doing a lot of stuff on the hot side that um, when he found out that we were actually adding it post-fermentation, that he, he, you know, kind of totally switched up which blend we were going to use and, and used a lot more things that, um, especially like higher higher amounts of the hibiscus um, and and finding ways to be able to extract that color still on the cold side was, was cool to play with. Yeah. Um, and obviously, I mean, I, I think most homebrewers who have, who've, played around or brewers have played around like tea in beer going in on the cold side is, is usually the better option out of the two. Mm-hmm. Ha- have you, have you messed around uh, after you found out that like the, the original blend was for the hot side? Did you ever sort of mess around with that uh, on that side? Um, not a lot other than a few, few pilot batches. We've never done something quite to that scale production. Was there a noticeable difference? Um, yeah, I would say it, that the blend for the cold side, like I said, it brings a lot, a lot more, it's much more vibrant, um, much more fruity. Um, and it gives us a little bit more time to, I think, get those flavors without having to worry about over extracting on the cold side, you know, of the time that we would be steeping it otherwise that gives us a little bit more, more less to worry about by, by doing it on the, the cold side. Sure. You, you mentioned, you know, um, uh homebrewing and you and your co-founders are coming from a homebrewing side. Um, and there, there, there's a lot of brewers who have come from there who, who have gone pro, but there are, you know, everyday life sort of gets in the way once you start to scale up and you're running a business and, um, you know, it really becomes about livelihood, not necessarily a hobby. Some of the things that originally drew you to, or drew people to a a homebrewing lifestyle or homebrewing hobby, uh, sort of, go by the wayside. Um, I, I, I'm curious as to um, 
what you've been able to hold on to from your home brewing days that sort of still act as a guiding light in your professional brewing life? Yeah, um, I would say that's a good way to describe it. Things do come up and you, you realize you get kind of pushed and pulled into different roles other than what you love, which is brewing. And, and that definitely happened here. Um, pretty early on, we knew that we wanted to hire a professional brewer, someone who had more experience. And um, so we hired Steve Hood, who was our first head brewer from Boulevard. Mm-hmm. Um, he's now at uh, Ghost Town in California. But um, And he trained another brewer that moved up behind him and another brewer that moved up behind him. Um, and our, our current head brewer, Eric, is one of our first employees. He started... Um, selling bottles to go before we even had a tap room. Then he moved to the tap room. Then he became our pilot brewer, assistant brewer. And, you know, we're five years in and he's, he's making incredible stuff. I would say the biggest thing unfortunate about this is still having a lot of involvement in the brewing process, uh, specifically, you know, planning beers, you know, figuring out what we want to do next. Um, and, and the collabs we do in the community is, is something that still keeps me really motivated. It's kind of shifting from, um, brewing the beer to what can we do with the beer you know how can we reach out to people you know whether it's ingredients that we buy like the tea or or vanilla we buy from a local vanilla supplier um you know there's a lot of things we could just go online and buy but if i know there's someone in our community that's specialized in that focuses on that then that makes the beer much more fun much more collaborative um and we've kind of taken that to to whether during normal times i'm tired of saying that raise but using our tap room as a resource to, to raise money for an organization you know have them come in or um or certain pilot brews to now a lot of our distributed brews we will um pick an organization to work with to kind of do that beer with and and donate funds from that beer and it's just been a matter of you know if community has been so supportive of us how can what can we do to give back it's also kind of like the mindset of you know you never know what's going to happen and so if brewery has to shut down tomorrow we want to know that we've we've made an impact not just by you know brewing and selling beer it's harder and harder for breweries to stand out these days um and you're is is it fair to say that you're a suburb of kansas city yep i'm looking at the map and trying to i mean you're not too too far um uh from 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 the big city there um you know, and obviously Kansas City has its uh, a pretty vibrant uh, brewing culture and a, and a lot of breweries there um, and some major players, uh, as, as it were, uh, in, in the beer scene. When you're working on a smaller level um, and you can actually get into a community uh, in a meaningful way, do, what sort of connection has that forged uh, with the drinkers? You know, obviously you have a reputation for that, but like, do you think that that helps bring them back that maybe, you know, I hope so. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I hope so. I hope that they know, um, how much we care and how grateful we are. Um, and they know that by supporting us, it's not just keeping the brewery moving forward, but it's, you know, it's gonna be able to help someone else down the road. Yeah. There's a lot of worry in beer these days with, um, uh, everything that's happening, uh, with with various shutdowns related to to COVID nineteen, what have the last couple of months been like for for your brewery, and what does the future look like? Uh, I use I use roller coaster as you know an analogy quite a bit. Um, it was 
pretty pretty stressful early on just because uh, we you know we had to let go quite a, a bit of pretty much all of our whole team other than production um our our distributors almost immediately sent out emails saying that orders were were going to be canceled and that they didn't know when things were going to pick up again um we kind of pulled back everything to our production plans for the year to okay well we need to figure out how to make a lot less of a lot more kinds of beers to keep people coming in the door to supporting us through the tap room. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was kind of day to day, just what can we do next? You know, what can we do? Um, what's, what's another opportunity? I, I think a lot of people kind of said where, where they would normally say no to something or that, you know, that's too much effort. They're saying, you know, we got to try it, you know, let's try this, let's try that. We brought on an online store that I don't think we'll ever get rid of now that we never had before and that's been huge um but but you know i think the big thing is people showed up a lot of our community you know our, our beer drinkers they showed up and they they took care of us through the worst the worst of it um they didn't just come in and buy bulk you know there are people coming in almost every day every other day saying you know we're gonna buy a little bit now we're gonna buy a little bit in a couple of days buy a little bit more um and that that helped us um to where, you know, once things did pick up, once liquor stores and, and grocery stores, depending on where you are in the country, you know, their sales really picked up and that, that got our distributors back under their footing. Um, the biggest difference, obviously, is, is bars and restaurants. You know, we haven't really sold kegs since, like, March, and that's that's insane. So our, our package sales are pretty much it. Um, and I think we're going to we're gonna be that way for a while. Uh it's just it's just so tough not knowing um, what's coming and knowing how long we're going to be in this this limbo situation. And you're doing bottles and cans for packaging, right? We do we do some bottles for some like cellar beers, um, some of our barrel aged stuff, but we're mostly cans. When so obviously, if 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 you're not doing uh, draft beer and things have uh, fallen off on that arena, um, we talked earlier and and you know about the ingredients that you're using and there's a lot of um, you know fresh fruit that you're using, fresh vegetables that you're using that you're getting from uh, local farms and some of this I imagine is seasonal dependent. Although you can uh, freeze stuff pretty well these days and get all manners of, of other flavors that uh, that that can last over time. But um, when you see a volume dip happen, have you had to adjust what you were hoping to brew with as far as ingredients go um, this year? Yeah, we've it's it's mostly the the, the scale of, of of each batch. Um, we haven't been hit too hard trying to find the ingredients we had planned on using. It just was more, you know, maybe we were going to brew sixty barrels of this beer. Now we're only going to brew fifteen, you know, or or thirty. Yeah. Um, and we're not going to have as many places to share it with. It was, you know, we when it first hit, we really thought we were going to have to close our doors for a little bit, you know, not for good, but we didn't see us being able to to get more supplies, and so you know, we were we were going to brew all the beer we could with what grain we had, and we were going to package what beer we already had in fermenters, um, and then that was going to be it. But but again, at least luckily we got the support we needed. Um, but production still didn't ever 
you know, really go. It was kind of like, let's fill a tank here, let's fill a tank there and keep going. Um, so we've, we've never done a, a lager here. And in most of that is just because the time it takes to, to condition the lager. And most of our beers that we do, we can turn over in, you know, 10 days, two weeks, three weeks. Um, and so we, we, we're like, well, this is as good a time as any. So we, we filled um, the tanks of our first one and, and let it sit. And it was, it was pretty great. So that was, that was you know, <laughs> one positive to come out of this. Uh, did you do anything crazy with it or is it just a standard? It's a Mexican style lager called Oddbird. Um we named it after a farm that we work with that picks up our spent grain, but um, no, just clean and beautiful and and delicious. I uh, I remember talking with some other brewers at the beginning of COVID who who were doing the same thing, who were just brewing lagers, and you know they figured since we have this tank, so like let's you know spend the next ten weeks uh, uh, letting this go out, and, and I think that's been a a happy result, especially for among the folks who. Um, like drinking lagers like like I do. Um in looking through the other beers that you make though, there are a lot of uh there's fun ingredients. You know, you have a an orange gozo with uh, with orange zest and uh kumquat and gooseberry and uh a, a beet vice as well. Uh which uh I, I want to talk about that in, in, in just a moment. But um I'm always intrigued when brewers are using a lot of different fruits and vegetables because if you're if you are getting them in from the farm uh and you are relatively small um there's processing involved uh and a lot of the time that's just a huge pain in the ass um what what's the beer that almost broke you guys spirit wise uh because of ingredients that you had to uh process yourselves beforehand uh, it's, it's beat vice <laughs> and it's, it's definitely, it's definitely that one. Um, which is why we only brew it once a year. Um, but it's, it's such a special beer. We, we, you know, we'd never stop, but it takes to do a, a batch. It takes two days of luckily the, the produce supplier we work with, um, they, they're able to peel them and dice them, but it's still a, hours and hours and hours of, um, you know, hitting them in the hot pack with boiling water, softening them enough to be able to, you know, turn them up and pump them into the tank. Um, and it, we just got our, our brewer, you know, going full steam when that beer is ready to come out. Um, but it's, it, yeah, it's a super special beer. And, and we... <laughs> special we or stressful? We, I, I, which one? Both. <laughs> both. both. Um, but it, like... It's, it's worth it, and, and we enjoy making it, and the people who love that beer, um, you know, many say it's, it's their favorite beer we make. Um, and so it's, 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 it's a labor of love, obviously. Beet is such an interesting thing to uh, ingredient to, to brew with. I mean, it, I'm sure it lends a, a beautiful color uh, when, when, when the beer comes out. Um, I'm sure it's a pain in the ass to clean up from uh, the brewery if any spills or... Uh, it, it, it gets on anything, but, um, you're just, uh, are you doing anything special with it beforehand? Um, you're just, we just use, we just use a ton. Like we, we use, you know, even after processing, it's still over 700 pounds of beets in a batch. And so I've had, I've had some beet beers where it's like, you know, it's a nice subtle or balanced beet flavor. This is like no joke. This is like beet juice. Um, and in a glass, it's, 
it's vibrant and it's earthy. Um, what's nice to me uh, is is the sugar beets we use. I mean, they've got a lot of sugar. Yeah. And so even after fermentation, to me, you almost get it's you get the beet the beet character, which is, there's no getting around that. But you also get kind of a fruity, punchy, almost berry quality to it too, just because it's very rich. Yeah. Um, and it's it for us, it's something that like a lot of local chefs look forward to. It's a really fun beer for beer dinners and pairings. Um, charcuterie, you know, rich cheeses. For me, and being in Kansas City, barbecue is a big thing, so I almost use it to replace like strawberry soda. Like it, it's a really nice beer to kind of pair with those rich meats and smoke and everything. Um, and and yeah, and the the color is, is gorgeous. So it's it's a really fun beer to take out the beer fest season as well because people are walking around with and, and everyone's wondering what the heck they're drinking. Yeah, it, yeah, the word of mouth certainly gets around, and then everybody wants to. It almost sounds like it's uh, it's great for Instagram, as it were. You got it. Um, are there ingredients that you've used from the farms um, that you'll just never use again? That you you know you thought would be something fun to go into beer, and it just kind of it wound up not working. Um, we've luckily, I think we've got you know we've got good heads here that we've been able to kind of work through a lot of stuff. Um, we did a beer a while back that used um, juniper berries, and in processing those through our, our our food processor, we didn't realize how much it was going to stain, and like leaves like like a rosin and um, just kind of that character behind. Yeah. But, but other than that, nothing nothing major. Um. There's something about. You know, Cezanne's and, uh, you know, Berliner Weiss and, and, and Goza um, that lend itself to being dosed with, you know, produce or things from the land. Um, what's the appeal for you with those base styles? As sort of a, um, as sort of, it's because it's not a blank canvas, but it's a, I, I don't know even how to describe it, but like there, there's something about it that, that lends itself and, I guess that's why what I'm asking you is, you know, why you found it, it it those particular styles work so well. I think they are, um, you know, depending on the yeast profile, it can be, um, I guess, balanced. There's nothing there otherwise that that it still can be. Um, I guess light's a, not the best word for it, but um, for us, it's fun to, especially when we're working with different fruits and stuff. Um, I feel like those areas just us being in the Midwest, they translate well. So you think about, you know, the, the farms and stuff in Europe, it, it'd be the same kind of stuff that if we were making those beers here, um, it works really well because we have that opportunity. We haven't taken this much advantage of it, but there's a lot of breweries that, you know, are able to source those those local grains and malts and stuff as well. But I think I think just in, depending on the, especially our saisons and stuff, they're pretty attenuative. And so giving them an option too to kind of chew and, and, and eat through a lot of the, the fruit we'd add in secondary as well. It works really well. You're five years into the brewery now. Yep. Coming up this, this winter. Uh, obviously the last couple of months have been uh, trial by fire for, for most folks, but if you go back in time to, to January before the world uh, fully really started, started to change, what do you think is the biggest lesson you've learned 
since opening up your doors that you, you know, if you can get in the DeLorean and go back to opening day for, for the brewery and, and tell your younger self, uh, you know, Hey, get ready for this. Um, what would it be? What's the, what's the big takeaway? Yeah. I think it was, I mean, there's something we were aware, aware of already just because of people we work with and, and see on a regular basis. But I, I hope a lot of people um, realize how important and how vital just the, the service industry is. Um, you know, it's, we send our beer out the doors, but it's it's the people working at bars and restaurants that take care of it and, and serve it to people and talk about it. And, um, and yeah, and, and it's, they're they're the people we rely on on a regular basis, and so I hope I hope people don't take that for granted anymore. Um, I, I think in and kind of recognizing you know whatever the factor is, um, breweries taking care of their home market, uh, taking care of their their community that surrounds them. You know if we if we didn't have that that base already, if we didn't have those people, when you know when all of distro fell out from under us, I don't know what we would have done. What does the future look like for the brewery right now? Um, we are are taking it, you know, day by day, week by week, kind of working for our distributors and the information they give us. And, um, you know, we're, we're not in any place to, to get still, not to get to the production level that we once were. But um, I think just being conservative and, and really considering everything you're, you're doing and making, um, the volume, how, how, it's, how you're going to, you know, get it into into beer drinkers' hands. Um, so if if we can keep on this pace, and you know, and we can we can balance giving a little bit to the market that they'll take, but also having some some special stuff here at the brewery to keep them coming in, I think I think we'll be okay. Are lagers going to become a regular part of the brewery's repertoire? Yep, we are already on our our next our next batch. Um, some more is down the road for us. Uh, and and we couldn't be happier because that is something that you know it's a style that we love. But we the 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 fear of commitment has always <laughs> put it aside. So yeah, one or two good things coming out of COVID. Then you got it, Chris. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure. It's it's always great to chat, and especially about beer. That's Chris Myers of Crane Brewing Company in Raytown, Missouri. My thanks to him for taking the time to talk and to share insight into the brewery. If you can get your hands on some of the beers, you likely won't be disappointed. Before we go, I'll remind you that this show is produced by Beer Edge. Check out BeerEdge.com and subscribe to the newsletter, and also download the Beer Edge podcast hosted by Andy Crouch with new episodes every week. Also check out Steal This Beer and the BYO Nano podcast. And please don't forget to go onto Apple Podcasts or wherever you download and leave a review of this show. If you have questions, suggestions, or guests you'd like to hear, you can email me at John Hall, that's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L, at BeerEdge.com, or reach out on Twitter at John underscore Hall. Nate Weber did the music, Jeff Quinn designed the logo, and new episodes release every Wednesday. And that's when I'll be back again to drink beer and to think beer, and I hope you'll join me.